Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello, and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the new podcast that takes an expert look at international politics from Berlin. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the German Council on Foreign Relations, and together with Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics, we look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello, everyone, and hi, Ben. Last episode, we pivoted a bit from where we came from uh, to where we're going on Germany's watershed moment in foreign and security policy. It's Seitenwende. And we got to get into some of the conversations uh, we've been itching to have since the idea for this podcast first came to us. Namely, what is Germany's grand strategy or overall objective for its society, not just in whether and how it upholds its values and advances its interests abroad, but also what it seeks to achieve overall at home as well. And what are the security implications of some policies that may seem domestic at first, uh, but actually have big foreign policy ramifications. And today we're getting into one of those policy areas, one that's a big mess in Germany right now, no matter how you look at it, and that is energy. Um, now, Ben, at the time that Russia reinvaded Ukraine in February 2022, Germany was buying over half of its gas from Russia. And despite repeated warnings from its allies, many of whom were also buying Russian gas, but perhaps not in the same quantities, uh, as recently as late 2021, Chancellor Olaf Scholz and plenty of other German politicians were insisting that the now-canceled Nord Stream 2 pipeline was purely a commercial endeavor. Uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky uh, in his address to the German Bundestag, rather pointedly uh, said, we always warned Nord Stream 2 was a weapon, and you, keep te you kept telling us it was business, business, business. Uh, eventually, of course, Germany had to set up LNG terminals uh, very quickly to get itself off of Russian gas, uh, and it spent 200 billion euros to basically get itself through the winter to cushion gas prices with a gas price decal or cap, uh, a big expensive mistake or a symptom of a certain mistake. Why did we see this kind of refusal for so long in Germany to wake up and see that energy uh, does have clear geopolitical implications? Well, Aaron, there are several reasons. I mean, the low upfront cost of Russian gas was an obvious one. It was a clear attraction and it's a big factor, but I don't think it's the only factor. It was combined with a lack of long-term thinking, a lack of a clear strategic approach to international affairs and something of a fingers crossed approach that just hoped nothing would actually go wrong and that the model that they had could continue as it was. With Russia, it also related to the wider and deeply misguided policy of Wandel durch Handel or change through trade was motivated by the notion that connecting Germany to Russia would help Russia change for the better to become more liberal and democratic. But there was never any real pressure for that change. And so it became a policy really of greed, dressed up in, uh, in nice rhetoric, and one that, if anything, changed Germany more than Russia. So if there was vandal, durch Handel, it came on the German side through the Russian influence that it piped into government and business here. Another motivation, which was famously expressed by German federal president Frank-Walter Steinmeier, which he would later come to regret, was that, that this kind of connection would help Germany pay off its moral debt to Russia for the Second World War. Now, entrenching an autocratic and anti-democratic regime that was actively engaged in hostile active measures against Western democracies 
How that was ever really seen as an acceptable way to do this is questionable, to say the least. And that's something that a lot of German politicians, but also people have been reflecting on quite deeply over the last couple of years. But moreover, as has become clear to those people who have actually reflected on this in the last couple of years, this uh, attitude equated the Soviet Union, which Nazi Germany fought against, with contemporary Russia and ignored Germany's debt to Ukraine. It overlooked the millions of Ukrainians who were killed in that conflict, which is something that Timothy Snyder, among others, have done a lot to bring big attention to. And there are some links in the show notes to sources on that. But this approach also created a situation where Germany again overlooked its Central and East European neighbors and ignored their warnings about what uh, completing the Nord Stream pipeline would do, even though it must be said that some of those neighbors were also buying Russian gas at that time. But there's other factors in play too. Germany had, 10 years ago, been through a so-called Energiewende, or energy change, energy transformation. Its infamous decision, most closely associated with the decision to close down nuclear power capacity in the wake of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And in some way, um, you could see that this was actually supposed to stimulate a green transition. But did that actually really get going in serious speed or in serious scale? Some would say it's actually a synecdoche of the time of stagnation and shrinkage of the Merkel era and the false moral standing that Germany was able to build at that time based on better rhetoric, but not actually better action. There were, of course, many in Germany pushing hard and fast for a more meaningful transition to green energy at that time, as part of the country's overall need to make a green transition. And for some of them too, though, the last 18 months have also been quite difficult. For Greens who pushed so hard to ditch nuclear power, commitment that really became something of a sacred cow in the debate, this led them to push the government to burning more high-polluting coal to make up for the shortfall in Russian gas, rather than go back on that commitment to, uh, to get rid of nuclear power. And that caused significant controversy, of course, here in Germany. So overall, I think, Aaron, it's more of the same picture we've been seeing in other fields, um, that Germany was doing quite nicely, thank you very much, from the world of yesterday, uh, was therefore reluctant to change, reluctant to see the warning signs, even when they were being wig- vigorously waved in its face by neighbours, partners and allies. And even though some lessons have been learned, Other choices that were made are already coming back to haunt Germany's coalition government. This dash for the new sources of gas uh, created new dependencies on authoritarian regimes, notably in Qatar and Azerbaijan. And recently, Qatar, of course, has supported Hamas's attacks on Israel. Azerbaijan has attacked Nagorno-Karabakh, creating a humanitarian crisis. Um, And so this raises further questions about the lessons Germany actually has learned from its previous dependency on Russian gas. On the domestic front... The overblown saga of the heat pumps, which was used as a cheap political football by Christian Democrats and others. Um, and we've also seen the, the liberal free Democrats who are in the governing coalition, the FDP, pushing for this extension to the uh, production of combustion engines and the use of combustion engines in the EU. Something that Olaf Scholz's chancellery was all too happy to push through for them at EU level to the disgust of many of the country's EU partners. So all of this, uh, I think, shows the continued confusion of the overall strategic picture, which is uh, manifested in energy, but which is a symptom of a wider problem. Joining us this week is Vibka Vinta, the deputy chair of the center-right Christian Democrats in Bremen and the founder of the Klima Union. Uh, that's the part of the CDU that is dedicated to climate action issues. She is also a member of the action group Seitenwende at the council DAJP here. Thank you so much for coming on today. Now, the fact that you've established Klima Union is proof, I think, of how climate is a discussion that happens across Germany's political spectrum, not just within a party like the Greens, for example. What inspired you to found it? And what would you say its mission is now in German politics? 
Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure being here. So I founded the Klima Union um, a few years ago because I feel that we need to be more ambitious with our climate policies within the CDU and CSU. So we were in the government at that time and I just saw the temperature rising all the time and I was really afraid what would happen to my home state, especially to Bremen, um, because I like to live here. And if we don't do more regarding to To, um, to climate protection, then Bremen would be underwater by 2100. And that ultimately led me to find, founding the Klima Union. A great big welcome on Berlin side out to Claudia Kempfett. She has long led the Energy, Transport and Environment Department at the German Institute for Economic Research and is a professor of energy economics and energy policy. She is also the author of Schockwellen or Shockwaves, a book about how energy sources like oil and natural gas have been weaponized and whether there is a chance for us to cultivate more energy independence while addressing German climate goals at the same time. Welcome to the show. That book, Shockwaves, has certainly generated some shockwaves in the German debate. Um, Claudio, tell us a bit about the book, what it's about and why it has indeed made such an impact. I mean, Shockwaves, uh, I've decided to do, to write this book uh, because um, we were in the middle of so many shocks last year, uh, especially with the Ukraine. Um, I mean, the invasion of Russia and the Ukraine and the fossil energy war we are still in. And that is a shock. Uh, and the shock is still there. And the shockwave we are still in. And the next shock was also inflation, the economic shocks. And now we have the next war shocks. So the shocks are not over. And we are becoming more and more, um, I mean, in fear and uh, or have more fear um, because of all this and I've decided to, to write it down uh, especially uh, one thing was important for me to learn from the mistakes of the past and there has been so many which has been done in the past uh, because uh, we were too dependent on Russian gas we uh, stopped uh, the pro uh, production of solar and wind energy here or have, have to I mean so many decisions that has been wrong and that uh, direction. And uh, on the other hand, also to provide positive uh, examples, what you can do in a world of a transition. We have a link to the book in the show notes. So how do you think Germany should push ahead with energy transition in a way that is sensitive to both climate uh, and also to geopolitical concerns? Because of course, we have uh, been discussing a lot about energy security ever since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. How do we do both of these things at the same time? That's a very complicated issue, I think, because we see that we now have two crises at the same time. One, we have the climate crisis and we have the energy crisis as well, because we thought that we could use gasoline um, as a kind of bridge towards our climate neutrality. We could get rid of coal, get rid of nuclear power um, and could just use gasoline. And now we can't get it anymore or otherwise said we, we decided not to take it anymore from Russia because of their war against the Ukraine. And therefore, we now have a problem in Germany because we don't know what to do. And using coal again is such a bad decision because it, it emits so much carbon dioxide. And that's, that's a real problem. And right now, we are discussing how to do it. I feel that we need to put out more renewable energy out there. And we need to further this process as quickly as possible, as well as getting more power grids as well, because we see that we need them. Because 
In former times, we produced most of our energy in the south of Germany, whereas now we have more energy in the north of Germany. And I feel like this should be a topic for every party and we need more renewable energies. That won't be all. We need to import energy as well um, from other states, mostly in hydrogen form, because we know that we won't be able to create enough energy for what we need. <laughs> we need more renewable energies that we need to become climate neutral as soon as possible. Um, the limit that we set ourselves right now is 2045. But at the same time, of course, we are discussing how to do it. Me, I'm not a fan of nuclear power. Some of the people in my party would like to have nuclear power back. That's not what I'm advocating for. I think that our future lies in renewable energy. I think two two things are really important. And the first one is to increase the share of renewables f much faster than we are doing right now. I mean, here, of course, uh, the Greens and the climate minister Habeck, he tries his best uh, to establish more laws to increase the share of windmills and uh, solar. This is happening right now, not to that large extent, which is necessary, but at least they try their best uh, to, to improve uh, the situation and create laws uh, to increase Uh, the, the numbers of windmills and solar uh, rooftop panels. The second thing is uh, energy efficiency. The saving is crucial. And here comes into place, I mean, those things in the transportation sector, which uh, are not uh, loved. Uh, that is, on the one hand, to have a speed limit, uh, which is <laughs> Germany does not have a speed limit. The automobile needs to be changed towards more electric mobility, more railway systems and uh, all this. Uh, to become also emission-free and less energy-intensive as it is right now. Uh, the same is true for the building sector. To move away from uh, gas and oil heating systems towards more heat pumps, energy savings, uh, components and all this. Absolutely. And as you say, change needs to happen. But so far, some of those changes, as you also pointed out, haven't been popular. The heat pumps, the tempo limit, which is the speed limit on the autobahns and so on. Is it a case now that German governments should be forcing people to do some things and prohibiting them, banning them from doing others? Or is this really a case of persuasion and incentives? Incentives is, is one thing to do, of course, uh, but it cannot be all. I mean, as a speed limit, I mean, you say preventing, uh, but I would say a, a speed limit and also a protection uh, to, to not only to, lose, to use less energy or fossil energy and uh, reduce emissions, but also to increase safety, for example. You, it's always the question how you, uh, how you explain it also to, to the people and what it's good for. And um, the polls, by the way, in Germany show that there's a big majority in favor of a speed limit, but um, th that's another story. So it's it's incentives, of course, and for example, with the uh, electric cars uh, to promote um, electric cars more, uh, provide incentives to buy electric cars or wall boxes and all, all this, which is necessary. And um, uh, but on the other hand, also reduce the, uh, the subsidies and the fossil uh, transportation sector for example we still have a diesel a lower diesel tax uh, than uh, the gasoline tax nuclear power is obviously a controversial issue uh, partly because that shortfall that you mentioned that was made up with russian gas was due to that strategic decision to get rid of nuclear power which had previously provided quite a large amount of fairly clean um, secure energy that didn't create dependencies on authoritarian regimes was that really the right decision for germany 
I think um, that we have a huge issue with, issue with nuclear power because we don't know what to do with the garbage it creates. So we don't have some place to store the garbage yet. And we have a huge discussion in Germany, which has been going on over years. And as long as this question isn't solved, I think that it's not very responsible to still invest in nuclear power. And in general, nuclear power is so much more expensive than renewable energy that I think we should put our focus onto renewable energies and import hydrogen at the same time, and preferably green hydrogen. Thank you. Um, very quickly, just to follow up on that, is the same advice you would give to Germany's neighbors, to France and to Poland, who are both pursuing, and France has a strong nuclear program, Poland is developing one. Well, I think that every country should decide on its own. I don't want to give anyone advice because I'm not very much into the electricity politics of Poland or, or France. But of course, I see it with great difficulty because I, they neither have storage space for their nuclear garbage. And I think that this is a huge problem for the future generations because we just don't know what to do with it. Um, and therefore, I think um, that we should look for other solutions. And at the same time, we also saw in France in the past few months and the past year that they always had to import electricity from Germany because their nuclear power plants weren't working anymore because they need cooling and the rivers dried out and they didn't have cooling. So it's not very secure either in, in the form that it always is able to give energy or to produce energy. The advice to France and Poland as well, and I mean, France has really t difficulties, uh, uh, so high costs with uh, nuclear. Uh, they have blackouts, uh, brownouts in their country um, and uh, have difficulties in the future to provide the energy needs that they, uh, that they want to have. Poland as well, I mean, um, not only because of the costs and the waste issue. Um, we in this time where we have so many war conflicts uh, in Europe and now in the Middle East uh, again and everywhere, um, nuclear is not a technology we should uh, we should focus on. So assuming then that you're, you're advocating this, this future of renewables, um, that has quite a, a high upfront cost. How is the CDU going to persuade people to pay that cost up front? We've seen the, um, the difficulties of pushing through heat pumps, which would be more um, ecologically sound. So how is the C what's the CDU's position on how you get people on board? I think with renewable energies, many people would like to invest in them. So some states within Germany are issuing green bonds already. And a lot of people ask for them, for these green bonds. And there are many people who would like to invest in renewable energies because they know that they also profit from it. So I think this is, this is one point. And at the same point, we need to make it easier. Um, there's a lot of bureaucracy in the process of establishing a wind park, for example. And I think that we need to lower that bureaucracy. To follow up briefly on that, the debate in Germany has often taken on a, a tone whereby some people feel as though political parties are imposing things on them or forbidding them to do things. Is that the right way to get people to uh, adapt their behaviors and also to get them to pay the money through taxes for this transition? That's a really important question because I think that we need to take as many people on board as we can. Of course, there will always be people who say, oh, well, climate change, that isn't a thing. Of course, this is not what um, the science says. And I believe the science and the 99.9% say, well, we do have climate change. Um, but at the same time, of course, we need to ask, okay, how do we want to do it? How do we want to achieve climate neutrality? And many people are afraid that we would cut their meat or they aren't allowed to take cars anymore. And I don't think that's right. I think we need to look for climate neutral alternatives to all these things. For example, 
of course, you might not be able to drive a car with gasoline anymore in 2050 because we know that this emits carbon dioxide. Um, but at the same time, there's the possibility to take an electric vehicle. Um, and I think that, so I, I just recently bought a new car and I got an electric car and I love it because I can drive climate neutrally. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's not very different to driving a car which operates on gasoline, but it's rather successful if we show that a climate neutral life is as comfortable as the life that we are leading right now. Yeah, I think it's really important to explain to the people that um, there will only be uh, a good future or a better future or a good standard of living if we do that, uh, because uh, we do uh, also to reduce fossil energy, to reduce the burning of fossil energy, to increase energy efficiency, to go away from fossil energy and also the imports from the German perspective right now, which um, reduces costs which reduces conflicts, which reduces fossil energy wars, um, create peace uh, and uh, also uh, resilience uh, to the economy. And uh, the, climate, uh, the climate change uh, increases the cost dramatically and reduces the standard of living dramatically. And this is what is not explained well in this time of change. It's so important to explain um, why it's better to move to the future than to think the past has been good and will be always good. And the change will will provide a lot of opportunities. Is there enough ambition in German energy policy, would you say, uh, with goals like that? Uh, or could this, as has been done before, be accomplished a little bit faster? Well, I think that we can't be ambitious enough with the question of climate neutrality because we also have a model role for all the other countries in the world because a lot of countries are looking very closely on what we are doing here in Germany. At the same time, of course, we need to we need to make sure that everybody still has energy and we are just seeing right now because of the Russian war against Ukraine um, that it's really hard for us to create as much energy as we used to. Um, because we don't have gasoline anymore from Russia. And therefore, it's really hard. And my, my heart bleeds that we were forced to take on coal again. And I think that we would need to get out of coal as soon as possible. At the, but at the same time, it's the same as with the question before, how quick can we do it? How quick can our transition be? Because um, there are also jobs attached to it, people's lives who are depending on the coal mines. And I think that we need to take this into account. And we have this coal compromise, we called it, um, which was established. Um, the Western states of Germany, they also already decided to get out of coal quicker. I think this is a good way. Um, but you need to take all of this into account when making such a big decision. But of course, it would be great if we could get out of coal um, sooner with regard to the climate change. Is your vision for the climate future an optimistic one? Well, certainly I'm afraid some days because I think, how will this work out? Um, how will the world be when I'm 60 or 70? And what if I have children in the future? How will they live? And of course, I think about it. But at the same time, I am optimistic because I feel that many people are working on solutions. I hope that we will be quick enough. Um, it's my personal motivation to be in politics because I say that we need to become climate neutral as soon as possible. So if I weren't optimistic, I think I wouldn't be doing it. So of course, I'm a little bit afraid, but I think that we need to stay optimistic because if we are pessimistic and don't do anything anymore, we have lost already.
One thing that we also, I think, have to be cognizant of is, uh, on one hand, uh, the German public does want more action on climate change. That's very clear, uh, whatever poll you look at. Uh, on the other hand, we're also looking at a German public that does actually... Um, is interested in perhaps paying a little bit more um, for uh, a secure uh, sources of energy, for secure um, for secure materials and trade and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, security of supply. Exactly. Um, but we also see, and, and on one hand, I think that uh, more energy security through renewables can help with that. But on the other hand, um, and we have to ask this question, uh, a lot of the materials required for that uh, energy transition, required for those um, that infrastructure, does come from uh, China. Uh, and so how do we address uh, potentially another uh, dependency developing on an authoritarian state uh, for a resource that's very different for something that we need to, to make this energy transition? The material uh, security of supply, uh, which is really an important aspect because uh, um, the, the material that is needed uh, for the energy transition, not only the electric cars, uh, but also renewables, look at the, I mean, where are the P PV panels coming from? They all come from China. The material um, is coming from China and there's a huge dependency on uh, on China. This is a next geopolitical risk as the same as we had with Russia, uh, which we are facing. So we need to uh, become more resilient. And that is, uh, especially on material, uh, a really important aspect uh, and can only be done by, I think, two, two ways. The one thing is, um, and this is what I already explained, is to become uh, more efficient and um, um, to reduce energy demand, for example. And that means also in the building sector, as explained, but also in the transportation sector, that reduces the material needs. Uh, that is one really aspect and uh, not to, um, I mean, to, to really push for energy efficiency and energy savings in all sectors uh, and um, also in the industry in order to reduce the material needs. On the other hand, the material that is needed um, needs to be addressed uh, on, uh, first by recycling uh, to do more to uh, be really in a circle economy and um, reduce the needs also for material here. And, and the second is also research and development um, and innovation, which is needed um, to maybe also reduce uh, or come for new technologies and to reduce the demand of material here as well. I mean, okay, I, I understand that very well, but that's all going to take a lot of time. As it, as it stands at the moment, if next year, heaven forbid, China were to sink a US warship in the Taiwan Strait, it would also sink Germany's energy transition, wouldn't it? The next geopolitical conflict in China, that would be a, a really a, a difficult situation for us, um, even more difficult than the Russian uh, conflict. So, well, this really the, the answer here is, um, is again, uh, to do everything we can do to, to be more resilient. I mean, we have seen with the Russian conflict how fast we can also diversify imports. That is one thing. Uh, and the other thing is uh, to, to become faster also in 
and uh, strengthen the uh, production of uh, renewable technologies and energy saving technologies all this in Europe and here uh, we need to do more I mean we have done a lot of mistakes in the past to uh, really lose uh, the solar production the wind production uh, companies very important jobs uh, we lost uh, what we really need uh, in the future are um, peace technologies three brief very brief follow-up questions on specific parts of that and you can answer them in any any order you want but one is is that the same advice about nuclear that you would give to france and to poland one of which has a very strong nuclear power program and one of which is developing one second follow-up would be these energy savings that you talk of us needing to make as a matter then of urgency of geopolitical urgency as well doesn't that really actually mean banning things, though, and stopping people from uh, from doing certain things? And then third, is this a yes-in-my-backyard argument? So should we actually be, for example, mining the lithium in the Erzgebirge Mountains here in order to help uh, the production of electric car batteries here in Germany? I mean, um, to the first one, it's very easy. Yes, of course. The second one, energy saving. I mean, the good thing is, and our studies show that uh, in a world where we have more renewable energy and use electricity immediately as uh, and not wasting it by, for example, producing a lot of hydrogen where we need more electricity, much more electricity, but only hydrogen for the need that is unavoidable in the industry, but not for, for the transportation or for a heating system, then the energy saving or the energy need is halved to in comparison to what we have right now. So the good thing is, um, of course, we always need to uh, look at whether we uh, need to uh, stop uh, doing things which are really uh, stupid. And that is, uh, on the one hand, uh, we talked already about it, uh, the speed limit, for example, or uh, to also improve the railway system, public transportation, in order to reduce the cars and so on. And that is... Uh, one thing uh, we always need to do, but uh, the good thing is we don't have to stop in doing things, but we can do it uh, with uh, with more in a much more efficient ways, and that's not too complicated to do um, uh, if we stop wasting uh, energy. And the se the third point is. Um, Yes, in my backyard uh, discussions, yes. Um, I mean, lithium is a, is a good point, and um, why not mine it here? I mean, if we have, uh, if we have the opportunity, uh, we should do it. Thank you very much to our first two guests, Wiebke Winter and Claudia Kempfert, for taking us through the stark choices that Germany faces around its energy transition and its commitment to climate neutrality, and also how those choices fit into the country's foreign policy strategy at the moment. We're now joined by our other two guests to get a bit more into that, into the geopolitics of these energy decisions. First up, we have Simon Wout. He's a senior policy officer in the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate Action, where he works on energy security. And finally, my fellow Canadian, Loyal Campbell. He is a research fellow here at the Council on Energy Topics and their relations to foreign policy. Uh, first of all, gentlemen, if we look at LNG terminals, for example, this was one particular case just after Russia's invasion of Ukraine of something that got built extremely quickly, infrastructure that got built very quickly. And it proved, I say, that if there is a will, there's a way when it comes to energy in Germany, which brings me to the question of whether Germany is selling itself short or is perhaps not ambitious enough when it comes to energy transition goals. What do you think? First of all, thanks for having me. It's uh, I like your show because it has this unique inside and outside perspective on balanced politics. 
And uh, yes, you're right, Aaron. Um, the LNG terminals shows that Germany can be agile, can be fast, um, and can implement swiftly. But uh, we have to push the envelope on energy transition. Um, since the new government is uh, in charge, um, already renewables have been accelerated. But we um, to f meet both climate targets and keep energy affordable and um, also secure and uh, be independent and be more geopolitical smart. Uh, we have to be much more fast on building uh, up renewables, uh, expanding our electricity grid and also building hydrogen infrastructure. Thank you so much for the introduction and the question there. And it's a pleasure to be here. In one of the articles that I wrote for uh, for the International Politique, I kind of assessed that, like other analysts out there, that there was just too much LNG capacity being built. And this, there, the, there's, this is from data from the BMVK itself. So I think this is pretty indicative that they're aware that there, there was a bit too generous with a fire hose to put out a fire, uh, so to say. But I think that it's it's very, very good for Germany to even be in the habit of taking a plan and just acting quickly and decisively to address a crisis rather than kind of debating whether or not the policy is the perfect plan because that's kind of been the traditional German approach where it's just over assessing a policy and over assessing an issue and then just talking it to death rather than acting this kind of analysis paralysis I think it's it's it, whether or not it's the perfect solution doesn't always matter because having a solution is still very good itself. Let me first of all comment on if we have too much LNG capacity now. I don't think so because there's still Russian gas imported to Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh, so the EU and European countries still import uh, uh, gas from Russia and Germany um, is phased out Russian pipeline gas. But um, with the LNG capacities we built now, we can also provide gas to um, Czech Republic uh, to Austria and other countries. Germany has moved fast and actually gone ahead in some ways here, which is a, a good thing to see when we are in a country that still often considers slowness to be a virtue, deliberative democracy and so on, which hasn't enabled it to move at the speed of need or speed of relevance for geopolitical issues. So I think it's, it is interesting to see that there was that movement fast. But what consequences has that fast movement had in terms of creating new dependencies? The, the conversation of new dependencies is quite interesting, especially if you look at the new element agreement between uh, Qatar and Germany I think this is a uh this is one one important thing, but also more broadly between the LNG imports between um, the United States and Europe more generally. I think that this is another trend that should be getting quite a bit of attention in the future. Whether or not, I mean, whether or not the transatlantic relationship will deteriorate, that's it's very very unlikely in the circumstances. But I think the the ongoing political conversation within the United States and whether or not the um, the potential return of a Donald Trump and what that might look like. Because in his, his election campaign in 2016, 2017, uh, he really framed it around uh, gl American global energy dominance. And at the time, America's energy uh, system wasn't as robust as it is now, you know, after, after another several years of fracking advancing and also you have the you have the global gas and oil markets that that russia is trying to be or the, that europe and the west more broadly are trying to exclude russia from so american lng has never had this kind of clout globally especially to some of the biggest markets you know japan south korea uh potentially taiwan the european market right so there is a considerable amount of leverage at Amer leverage at american disposal 
Um, that's not inherently problematic if the relationship remains amicable, but the previous president is definitely someone who would be willing to exploit that kind of relationship to get some kind of domestic boost at home, right? So new dependencies are definitely something that need to be on the radar going forward, for sure. So let's talk for a second about China. Uh, China's a big exporter of a lot of the critical materials required in solar panels and other aspects of the Germany energy transition um, to clean energy. Uh, and like Russia, it is an authoritarian state uh, that has proven itself willing to use certain leverage and intimidation to get what it wants. Uh, it interferes in Western elections. So are we replacing one energy dependence with uh, another, even if we are looking um, at changing the source of, of, of energy that we're getting? And what can we do about that? The conversation around minerals is much deeper and much broader than the energy transition. So I, I know that the conversation at the moment is regarding climate and energy, but material dependencies goes much deeper throughout the economy. If you're talking about things like semiconductors, permanent magnets, and all of these things, this goes into all the way deep into defense technology, uh, advanced chips, uh, any kind of like even advanced materials that aren't used in energy transition so it's much more about, about broader economic dependence on materials which is climate and energy become a, a major subcomponent of that because you know windmills and uh, lithium-ion batteries and solar panels are particularly material intensive but it's much broader as well so having started off making this transition at what has famously been called the new german speed can you tell us a bit more about the transition that Germany is making in energy and what are its main pillars? What are the main ways forward uh, and how's it going? The, the pillars are that we need 80% uh, renewable uh, production of electricity by 2030. We have to expand our electricity grid um, by 2030 by 40% and um, we have to quickly ramp up hydrogen. So uh, we need renewables. Um, we already accelerated uh, solar and uh, wind significantly, and um, but we need also energy when there's no wind and the sun is not shining. And for that, uh, we need hydrogen. So for that, uh, we're building a hydrogen uh, grid in, in Germany. Um, we um, uh, produce more uh, hydrogen in Germany, but we also have an initiative called H2 Global where we import um, green hydrogen uh, from countries that have better uh, capacities for wind and solar energy. That could be even uh, Ukraine in the future. Ukraine has very good capacities for, uh, for wind energy and uh, we have a um, gas grid to Ukraine that in the future can be also used for hydrogen. But of course, um, we also talk about um, partnerships with African and Latin American countries. So countries uh, where the blind blow, uh, wind blows stronger and there's more sunshine than in Germany. Also Canada as well, I think. <laughs> um, we have uh, a delivery coming. We've been told 2025 of green hydrogen also from Canada. So a little bit of integration there all around. That's right. Loyal, a slightly skeptical look on your face there. Do you, do you think this is going to happen? 2025 hydrogen from Canada? In general, I think that there's a lot of positive attention given to hydrogen, but in, I'm also quite skeptical of whether or not it can be uh, delivered in scale because most of the projections or most of the assessment is to kind of just... Uh, 
it's it hasn't really been done yet. I mean, you're talking about blue hydrogen in most cases where it's actually been delivered, and it's not delivered in form of hydrogen. It's delivered in the form of usually ammonia or some kind of derivative. So the conversation gets a bit miscon a bit misconstrued to non uh to non technical experts. In general, people would would think that oh, hydrogen is just going to get pumped into a tank and then you ship it over. And when when in reality the most efficient and economical way to do this is to, is to produce it somewhere and then change it into a byproduct and then bring it uh, on a ship. So, in, But that's not always clearly communicated when you're talking about the volumes. But whether or not we can get green hydrogen by 2025 in terms of scale and capacity, I, I, I'm pretty skeptical on that. Well, perhaps, perhaps, Simon, you could develop a little on that by saying what are the obstacles to Germany's transition. You've outlined the key pillars of it, you've outlined the targets, but there is skepticism around. So what are the key obstacles to actually meeting those targets? A major obstacle is bureaucracy and permitting, and that's where we can take the um, speed where we build LNG terminals as an example, because there we bypass a lot of unnecessary bureaucracy and laws, and we plan in a very uh, short period of time um, LNG terminals, and we can use that experience for accelerating the speed where we ramp up uh, wind and solar energy and also uh, hydrogen infrastructure. Was this this is an example that's often given of Germany's federal structure working against it to somehow because a lot of planning law is in the hands of the regional governments. Is that that's correct? And what obstacles has that uh, thrown up? Right. I mean, Germany is a very consensus-oriented, uh, multi-level government, which has advantages, but it's not made for um, implementing speedy decisions. Yeah, built for comfort, not for speed, exactly. uh, as it was back in the, the old days. <laughs> um, yeah, but for example, one one part of this is about wind turbines and erecting wind turbines. Was it the 10 by 10 rule or so on? This, What was the, the issue there? Yes, I mean, and the, the rule is basically reflecting a not-in-my-backyard mentality, right? And um, every energy comes with downsides. So, and um, you, you and me don't want to have a turbine in, in my backyard, but some somewhere you have to compromise. Right. And I just want to follow up and push that a little bit further because this NIMBY or not in my backyard approach seems to haunt Germany's transition. Whether it is about sourcing critical minerals from global south countries so that they can be extracted from the ground there, rather than digging, for example, in the Erzgebirge, the Ore Mountains, um, on in the south of Germany here, and subjecting people to the side effects of mining, um, but really it's just exporting the problem and pretending it doesn't exist. Um, how to overcome this kind of nimbyism? I think it's important to uh, kind of have a reality check at a certain point in, in some regards to, to really, really make people realize that they can't have their cake and eat it too. I think that's part of the conversation. You're never going to get entirely over the issue for sure, but I think creating opportunities to have open dialogue and communicating clearly and fairly and well in advance why this project is important and why it's essential. At the moment, um, uh, the manufacturing sector of Germany is mainly in uh, southern Germany, where the in the past the nuclear power plants uh, uh, provided uh, cheap energy. And in the future, uh, energy in northern Germany will be mo more cheaper because uh, uh, offshore wind is there. So for the um, states in the north, it could be an incentive to attract manufacturing and other industries um, to the north of Germany. So economic incentives are key. 
and maybe even also a sense of pride in contributing to providing energy. I mean, energy, if you think of coal miners, it also always had this sense of identity and giving identity to regions. And um, there were also some label, uh, already some labels that I found very attractive. Heimatenergie of uh, Freiheitsenergie, freedom energy. So taking a pride in producing renewable energy, that could be also be a, mo a motivation. This Heimatsenergie, Homeland Energy, uh, not Homeland Security, but Homeland Energy, or Freiheitsenergie, Freedom Energy, this seems to be a change of the politics here, or an attempt to change the politics through a more positive discourse. Loyal, do you think that stands a chance of breaking through? Um, absolutely, Ben. I think that um, a really, really interesting example of this is to actually observe in the United States, after passing the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, there's been a lot of uh, investment into... Uh, electric vehicle supply chain in, uh, in Democrat, but also in Republican counties and communities. And m Republican communities, you know, the, in the, in the, within the U.S., the general political context is that climate, anything climate related is uh, politically charged. But everyone's always happy to have economic activity and happy to have jobs, right? So when you actually connect uh, infrastructure development or energy deployment or manufacturing or any of these kinds of things to the local communities, you'll have deep integration of uh, social values. And because it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not, in, it's not in my backyard. It's actually in my backyard. You know, you, you actually go from NIMBY to MB. It's in my backyard because I get, you get passionate. You know, it's like when you have a, a, a guest over and you want to show them your cool pool, you're like, Oh, look what we built. Yeah. My friend works at this plant and I installed it. Right. You know, you create this ownership structure. And I think that that actually is one of the interesting motivations of a stronger green industrial policy, where you're kind of making sure that at least some of the products are made and manufactured within Europe or within Germany. And even if that might raise the costs to a, to a slight or medium degree, I think there's certain, it's not just a, a conversation of economic costs. The social part gets really, really important as well. So Simon, I mean, you work on energy security. Um, What's the thinking on this at the moment? How to hedge against an incident in the Taiwan Strait, which would put the supply of things needed for Germany's green transition under threat? We are at the moment de-risking from China. So we cannot decouple from China, but we can de-risk. So that means that we invest heavily in building uh, capacities to, for semiconductors in Germany. Uh, we have two major investments uh, if in in Germany for for new semiconductor uh, factories, we form new partnerships with other countries that are more reliable. And then, to be fair, everyone's exposed in this way because China has such a stranglehold on some of those components, some of those uh, processed uh, critical minerals, and so on and so forth. So this isn't a problem Germany's facing alone. But do we really see enough joined up action with our friends, neighbors, and allies yet on this? I, th I think the I think the German position is quite fair because I think that in many cases, in many regards, the the Americans are quite hawkish on China, and they do push full. They're pushing quite. I mean, if depending on how you read the signs, quite hard towards decoupling. Um, but I think the 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 one part where I'd be particularly critical on on Germans uh, China policy is de-risk, but find where you want to de-risk and do it quickly. Make the, like de-risk the sections where you want to, but do that at an expedited pace, because I think 
there is this there is this risk where you have a, a window where the U.S.'s um, military bandwidth is kind of occupied in all of these regions and all of our and all of the West's bandwidth and attention span is occupied in Ukraine, Israel, and Karakabakh and all of these other places. Um, so I mean, and also China is going through an economic crisis at the moment, right? I mean, Xi Jinping has more pressure on him than he's probably had in a very very long period of time. So. The, the reasons why he might act are quite possible. So I think that it, it's perfectly perfectly reasonable for to not decouple and focus on de-risking, but I think it's I think it's more important to put your money where your mouth is, at least show that there's clear intention and deliver on it. Yeah, where there's a will, there's a Huawei. Oh, Ben, dad, dad <laughs> joke there. Ben Talis, no stranger to those. Were geopolitical push come to shove in the Taiwan Strait? Germany is still dependent on the U.S. for its security. If Washington then says, you're with us or against us, here, no chance to continue making things with Chinese components, you stop your trade, you stop supporting our enemy now. This is not the, the, the situation of competitor, rival, partner. This is the situation of enemy emerging. What can Germany do then? The, the convenient thing about renewables is actually once you deploy all, uh, or you don't really lose security over all that's deployed already. So buying a bunch of Chinese solar panels at the moment and deploying them, yeah, invade Taiwan tomorrow. Okay, the supply of solar panels is kind of, you know, you don't, you're not getting any more from China, but the ones you've already installed, they're still producing power. So there isn't the same kind of dependency ratio, especially in terms of deployed renewable capacity in terms of critical materials you end up in a bit more of a bit more of a bind replacing uh, a supply of uh, rare earths for example can take anywhere between 5 10 15 20 years to actually have the same kind of capacity and volumes like it's just it, it's not the same kind of thing where you know there's oil over there but it's more expensive to extract or the price will just be higher it's like no that there's actually no substitute for some of these like, like china supplies sometimes 97% of specific minerals right so if that supply goes offline then global is there's nothing to replace it, right? It's not that the rare earths are impossible to find. It's just that getting the mining and getting the permitting and getting the processing and, you know, getting the capacity to even in, do any of this is the entire supply chain takes a long time to build out. Is a Germany with more clean energy a more secure Germany, uh, also geopolitically? Yes, um more renewables make us less dependent from autocracies, not only from Russia, but also countries like Azerbaijan and Qatar, and also uh, re, um, energy grid based on renewables is uh, much more resi uh, resilient against attacks, right? You remember the pipeline um, attack on Nord Stream, or you see, uh, if you look at um, uh, nuclear power plants in, in the battlefield on Ukraine, like, uh, you see that a centralized energy infrastructure is um, very vulnerable against terrorist attacks or in in a uh, time of war and a decentral energy grid with renewables is much more resilient i i do agree but there is some nuance within that because if you're if you have too much uh too deep of penetration of renewables within an uh, an economic an economy like germany where you have such high just such raw high levels of demand and such high concentration of industries. 50% of the heating is done with gas and 25% is done by coal, both energy forms that we have to import. So um, that's where we really can um, make a difference. 
And um, we just passed major legislation. Yes, there was a lot of discussion about it, but uh, the legislation is now through Bundestag and Bundesrat and will be implemented with some uh, compromises. But I would say 80% of the law um, uh, was um, passed. Um, why was it so difficult? Yes, um, there are a lot of vested interests. The lobby for heat pumps is not as strong as uh, traditional uh, heat providers. Um, and the second reason is there's a lot of upfront investment. On the long run, we will save a lot of energy and money because uh, heat pumps are more uh, efficient and on the long run uh, cheaper. But um, we have to convince the public that it's worth to invest now to save later money and also become more independent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this, this shows again the need for leadership, but also clear communication and helping people to understand why that cost has to be borne, but also perhaps helping them bear that cost in that upfront period. So if, where the costs are front-loaded, even for things like, like education or so on, we help people afford that by taking out student loans subsidized by the government or so on. In various countries, there are different models of this. But helping people to understand the reason why you have to pay that cost and then helping them bear it. I mean, this is not beyond our imagination, I think, to come up with compelling solutions to. The question is, is there the will to do it? And also then, is it possible to use that will to get over those vested interests, which have played such a role in, let's be frank, distorting German policy in a number of areas for many years. And Germany's not alone in that, but it's become particularly obvious uh, in, in the last couple of years. The other thing that strikes me about this is the role of partners. Um, we've seen that uh, Germany has been accused of, of going it alone, precisely the opposite of what the Chancellor has said uh, they were aiming to do. Keine Alleingänger, as it's known in German, will never walk alone, as Olaf Scholz likes to say. But that's precisely what Germany's done on a number of occasions. Uh, so that 200 billion dump into the energy market last year, which managed to unite uh, Warsaw and Paris in opposition to Berlin's policy, was not coordinated with partners. And it was also expensive, that, too. We've talked about how expensive it was um it can be upfront for the heat pumps, but this is what we've also saw, said about certain energy sources. They can, they may seem cheap now, but they can actually be more expensive. Later. Well, right, this is it, and that's what the national security strategy has said. You know, you pay double for Russian gas, buy once, pay twice. The special Moscow deal. Um, this and this seems to me to be a lesson that is still being hard learned here, because where is that serious coordination with partners, and what is the role of the EU in that? Where's the EU's Green Deal, and how is that helping to become both more um, to, to deal with the climate emergency, manage our ecological transition, but also our geopolitical transition? Thanks for the question, bringing it to the EU level. But I also wanted to circle back there and to say that there is also an important thing about consuming less of specific resources, right? I mean, one of one of the one of the conversations around using less gas in specific sectors is also because then you you just don't need to import as much. And yeah, that is dependency in one regard, but it's also a matter of recognizing that hey, we can get this much gas at a good deal without having security implications attached to it. So if we reduce our demand from specific subsectors or specific parts of the economy where it's actually not really necessary and there's a viable alternative, then you're increasing your security dramatically for, for a pretty small 
for pretty small cost. Right. So if Canada and Norway could supply that level of demand, you don't have a geopolitical risk, but you still bear the climate risk. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm just saying in, the, in this case, especially with regards to the heat pumps, because it's not even a matter of economic cost. You're reducing demand on a, something you don't have and something so that everything you import can be directed to keeping more industries within Germany, right? Finally, I think that we do need to ask the one question that uh, often uh, comes from the outside um, of Germany, and that is the role of nuclear. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, why does Germany seem so content? to burn so much coal recently when the alternative, you know, is, was nuclear energy, uh, which is cleaner. And uh, how should people outside of Germany assess German commitment to climate goals if there is this source, which it just refuses uh, to use in favor of probably the dirtiest source possible, which would be coal? The decision to phase out nuclear power was already made 25 years ago by the um, then um, Red-Green coalition and then um, was accelerated by Chancellor Merkel after the Fukushima disaster. But it's, it was a hugely controversial topic over many decades in Germany and uh, the Green Party was mainly founded because of... Um, environmental protection, but also because uh, there was a big movement against nuclear power. So I think the, the compromise on phasing out uh, nuclear power um, was a consensus uh, 25 years ago um, and then done by all political parties, the Christian Democrats, the Free Democrats, uh, Green Party and Social Democrats. Um, so when uh, Russia attacked Ukraine, we only had 5% of electricity production was still nuclear. And then Chancellor Scholz made the decision to extend that. So um, he didn't take off the remaining three nuclear power plants that we had on the grid. He extended that. And now um, in, the, uh, in April, uh, we finally faced that out. So it's a, it was a very long-term decision. And yes, temporarily, we had to use a little bit more coal, but... Uh, the decision to phase out nuclear power was made long time ago. And I think there are very few Western countries that built nuclear power plants in the last decades. Finland built one that was very expensive and way behind schedule. Well, in interesting you, you say that indeed, because I mean, the UK is investing in more nuclear capacity. France has a long standing and large nuclear capacity. Poland is now looking into it. Canada is reviving its interest in this. I mean, just quickly to note, though, this is the kind of long-term thinking that many of us have been asking for in German policy. The question then is, that is it the right decision still haunts the, um, haunts the decision itself? So I think there's a good case to be made for it, as you said there, but there's also a case against, isn't there, Loyal? From a German perspective, I very much understand the political decision. I mean, a lot of it's not even comes down to cost or risk. It's just a matter of how genuinely how deeply entrenched the identity of the Green Party and, you know, social movement. Like it's it's so deeply entrenched in the psyche. Like it's not even a con you could you could make it free you could make you could have a solution for the nuclear risks you could have a solution for the nuclear waste you could have a solution for anything and it would still just be something people resist because it's it's such it's it's been such a, a deeply emotional um conversation in germany for such a long time so and that and that's kind of, and that's kind of my assessment and that's kind of why i, I just kind of recuse myself from the situation and I, I i think in there's certain cases where you just just let the germans be the germans and i think that they've made their decision on that and let it rest 
because there's a million other battles to fight in this topic. Right, which is also, again, what we've been asking for, for a clear position from Germany. Everyone knows where it's going. And so I don't think we can criticize actually on that level on this. So it's an interesting thing that, I mean, personally, it's not my, my preference, but at the same time, from a strategic point of view, fine, it's clear. Germany's direction of travel and position is known to its allies on this. It is slightly complicated by the fact that Germany takes electricity from the French nuclear grid, though, isn't it? In many years, uh, so uh, there's one or two years in the recent past where French nuclear capacity was producing less power than normal, and that was because of uh, rainfalls and different adjustments or having different 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 amount of reactors offline. Um, historically, yes, uh, Germany is a net importer of nuclear power from France, but uh, I think the last year or so there was also there were there was a net, net export. But there's also this weird thing where ex power is exported from the north and then reimported in the south, so using French transmission system. But I think in general, nuclear energy has a certain role within the European Union energy system. And I think that that's a fair conversation to have because energy is, again, a national competence. But I think within the German power system itself, I don't think there's a very viable future for nuclear just because the you could solve all of the problems whether or not. Like there is a, there is a technically viable solution for nuclear waste, whether it be the French reprocessing or long-term disposal. There's different kind of structures and extending life period ranges where you can make it economically viable. But the question still goes that if you're already having trouble with NIMBY over things like windmills and transmission lines, like nuke in just, my backyard is it's not, just uh, not worth the political and social capital. Even if that is entrenched, though, and that's clear to Germany's allies, it's clear to Germany's public, it's a cross-partisan or cross-party consensus on that. It's still a problem for Germany's allies because, not even from the, the seeming hypocrisy, but because Germany didn't get its act together in other forms of energy, which left it reliant on Russian fossil fuels, which were then used as a lever. So if Germany were able in future to adequately take care of its energy security with an eye to geopolitics, then presumably it would actually get the nuclear question off the table to a certain degree. First of all, on the myth that uh, we import um, nuclear uh, electricity from France, yeah, on certain days, yes, but um, on the long run, uh, we export more electricity or we used to export more electricity to France. We mainly import electricity from uh, uh, Norway and Denmark. So we have a European electricity market and we we do import um, a lot of um, renewable electricity and on very few days we import more electricity from France. Um, so I believe that that's a bit of a myth that, that we import that in, in large uh, quantities. And yes, you... Um, you can make the argument that the nuclear phase out was too quickly and um, that the ramp up of renewables was too slowly and we, we bridged that with uh, Russian gas. Yes, uh, that was a major mistake in the past, but I think now the acceleration of investment in renewables is, is much bigger. And um, I think Germany is really um, pushing the envelope on energy transition and if you look globally, I think the case is clear that the future is um, renewables. I mean, the United States, European countries, even China invest much more in renewables and very little in nuclear power. 
Well, we've certainly given you a flavour of the arguments in Germany around energy policy, how they relate to climate goals and climate action, but also how they relate to geopolitics. And we hope that it's been uh, interesting for you in an international audience to have that window onto what is the debate here? What are the obstacles to a coherent strategic outlook on the world that would actually encompass both energy and geopolitics in one? And in future, we're going to be further broadening our net and raising the scope of our ambition to include geoeconomics in that as well. And of course, searching for something that brings all those together is really the silver bullet of uh, politics right now. So stay tuned for our next few episodes on geoeconomics and the national security premium, uh, as well as uh, new idealism and the strategy that goes behind all of these uh, non-military changes in Sight and Venda as well. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Please remember to check the show notes for the Twitter handles of our guests, as well as some of their recent publications. Uh, until next time, Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin and tschüss. Tschüss.